Have you ever had a significant conflict with someone? Not about what sort of work should be done, but about who's qualified to do that specific task. In the passage that we'll look at this morning, we see this sort of conflict, and not just this sort of conflict in a day-to-day job, but in the important work that God was doing in the early church of taking the gospel message to new places. And we see a conflict that very easily could have disrupted the spread of that message, much as earlier obstacles have come up in the book of Acts. And so we'll see how Paul and the others at the church of Antioch worked through this specific conflict. Turn with me, if you would, then, to Acts chapter 15. It's uh, page 106 in the back half of the Pew Bible. Uh, Acts 15, and starting in verse 36, a a short section, but an important one, I think, for us to consider, uh, both in terms of what took place in that day and also how it should affect the way that we resolve similar conflicts in ministry today. And so we read here that Paul and Barnabas are interested in returning and going back to the places where they have started churches If you remember, that was on the island of Cyprus that was in the region of what is now modern-day Turkey, and they had started a number of churches in those places, and now they're concerned to check and see how those churches are doing. They are also interested to take the message from the church at Jerusalem that we saw the main part there of Acts 15, this question of how are the Gentiles supposed to be properly related to the church? Do they have to follow all of the Old Testament law? The response was no. Instead, they need to make sure that they are not participating in idolatry or immorality, and also that they are being sensitive to their Jewish brothers and sisters in the church and not doing things that would be unnecessarily offensive, like eating meat that had blood still in it or meat that had been strangled, which violated some of the Jewish uh, dietary laws. And so they are preparing for this journey, and Paul says, let's go and return and see how these brethren are in the places where we proclaim God's word. And now the conflict comes in verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. I think it's helpful for us before we get to Paul's specific objection to look back over and think about what do we know about John Mark. So if we turn back to Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, I'll read that for you. remember the account here in chapter 12 that Peter had been released from prison? When I say released, God miraculously delivered him. The angel comes in the night, frees him from the chains, uh, gets him past all the guards and the locked uh, doors and all of those sorts of things. And when he finds himself standing on the street, he goes to, as verse 12 says, the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Without going back through that entire story again, we see that this was a place where John was acquainted with the early church. It was an opportunity for him to observe and have perhaps a close connection with Peter the Apostle and others who were influential in the early church. And at least on some occasions, the church gathered at his mother's house. Then we see a little bit later in chapter 12 and verse 25 that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, their mission being to take an offering to help those who were suffering from poverty and potentially famine in the region of Jerusalem. 
they took an offering from the church up in Antioch and other churches in the region down to help them. When they had returned, uh, they had taken Mark uh, with them, John, who was called Mark. Not only did he accompany them on that journey to take this relief offering, but he also accompanied them on their first missionary journey. We see this in uh, chapter 13 and verse 5. It said, at the end of that uh, verse, it says, they also had John as their helper. But John did not stay with them. And this will become, I think, the point of contention for Paul. And it says in verse 13 of chapter 13, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Why did John leave them? We don't really know. At what point did he leave them? When their journey had barely begun, it seems, right? They had just left the island of Cyprus and were starting into the region of Asia, now modern-day Turkey. And John Mark says, I'm going to leave, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. So if we turn back to uh, the end of Acts 15, we see Paul's objection in verse 38. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Paul is not just saying, I have a little bit of a hesitation about this. The word insisting is very emphatic. Paul was saying, we should not do this. And he gives two reasons. He left us. He didn't continue with us in the work. And at first glance, those sound like kind of the same thing. But I think they taken together reflect Paul's opinion of John Mark's character, which is that perhaps due to persecution, perhaps due to any number of other factors, John Mark is not going to stick with it when it becomes difficult or when the journey becomes long or when our plans change. And so I don't think that he's the right person to bring along with us. And so we see that Paul doesn't want to take him. Barnabas does want to take him. We will see that at the end of verse 39. Barnabas took Mark with him. Why was it that Mark left? Some of the ideas that have been put forth were that perhaps uh, John Mark saw that Paul was having more of a place of leadership than Barnabas. And so perhaps there was a measure of, of jealousy, a sense of misplaced loyalty. Perhaps he grew homesick, perhaps any number of other reasons. We don't know the specific reason, but the observation was, here's someone who seems like he's not going to be faithful to the task. Why would it be that Barnabas would be willing to take Mark along when Paul was so emphatic in saying he should not go? I think there's at least two reasons. We'll start with the least important of them, but I think in order to understand them, we need to think about Barnabas himself. We don't have to turn there. I'll just uh, read it for you. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 36, Barnabas is described as the son of encouragement. So Barnabas is described as the son of encouragement. He is one who is ministering in the early church, taking opportunity to sell extra property that he had, in order to meet the needs of those in the early church. In Acts 9 and verse 27, he's one who welcomes Paul. 
Barnabas takes hold of Paul when no one else is willing to associate with him because they're afraid that this whole I'm following Jesus thing is just a, a, a facade, something that is going to be a trick, that he's going to, in fact, use it to seize people and cast them into prison as he had been. And yet he welcomes Saul, later Paul. Barnabas is described in Acts 11, 22 and 30 as a trusted messenger of the church. They sent him on various tasks. They trusted him with those things. And so this is the sort of person that Barnabas was. Barnabas himself was no stranger to persecution, according to Acts 13 and verse 50. And yet, we note that Barnabas is the cousin of Mark. Colossians 4 and verse 10 describes John Mark as Barnabas' cousin Mark. So what's the first and perhaps less important reason that Barnabas is willing to give John Mark a second chance? Because he's family. And certainly we all know that, that even if there is conflict in our family, that there is a, a sense of bond, a sense of connection, that there is a sense of obligation that we have to our family that transcends the connection that we have with, with other people, perhaps. And yet even so, I don't think that that was the most important reason that Barnabas was willing to take John Mark along. Why was, what was the main reason that he was willing to give him another chance? The main reason is that Barnabas was someone who encouraged people. Barnabas was someone who was willing to give people that others were suspicious of or who had clearly failed in various ways a second chance. The irony of this was that the person who most notably Barnabas did this for was Paul himself. Paul was the outsider before. What did Paul do? Paul persecuted the church, threw people in jail, participated in their martyrdom and their execution for following the way, trusting in Jesus. Barnabas had already given Paul a second chance. He said, everybody else is afraid of you, but I'm willing to take the risk of seeing if what you are saying is true and of introducing you to the other apostles. And so it seems that Barnabas was the sort of person who was willing to give further opportunities even to those who had failed. So what happens? There occurred a sharp disagreement. Verse 39 Paul says, he is not going with me. And it seems that Barnabas said, we should give him another chance. What happened? They separated from one another. And this is interesting because, as I said a moment ago, Barnabas had given Paul a second chance, introduced him to the church at Jerusalem, traveled with him on the first missionary journey for some period of time, traveled with him on previous uh, tasks that had been assigned to them by the church, so they were in some level friends. At the very least, they would work together in ministry, and yet there's this strong disagreement, and now they're going their separate ways. So what takes place? Verse 40, Paul takes Silas with him. Barnabas takes Mark with him. It's interesting to note, they go two different directions. Barnabas takes Mark and goes to Cyprus which, interestingly enough, is where the first missionary journey started out, right? They went to the island of Cyprus, which would have been west of Antioch in Syria. And uh, I think perhaps 
had the opportunity for Barnabas, and this is going beyond the text, this is merely my uh, assumption at this point, I think that Barnabas took Mark back to the place where he had not stuck it out to give him an opportunity both to stick it out and to see the work that God had done. Basically to give him a sense of here's what you missed out on seeing because you abandoned the work too soon. Paul goes a different direction. He heads to the north and then through the, the land route into Cilicia, which would have been northwest of Antioch, and so he goes a different direction. What was the long-term result of this conflict? Specifically, in the impact that it had on John Mark and on Paul. Well, we notice, first of all, that for John Mark, he is described in Colossians 4.10, Paul says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so in a context of a passage where Paul is talking about those who had abandoned him, he says Barnabas and Aristarchus and others have been faithful, welcomed them as genuine believers, as servants of God. And so clearly Paul's opinion of Mark by this point has begun to change, right? We see furthermore in Philemon, uh, verse 24 of that uh, short one-chapter book, that Paul describes Mark as a fellow worker. Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And so Mark is put in the same category as Luke and other faithful companions of Paul. And connecting it with Colossians 4, Demas forsook me, having loved this present world. Barnabas, Luke, and the others remain faithful. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, as Paul comes toward the end of his ministry, he says this, Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. So not just is Mark described as someone who's a useful servant of God over there with other people, but Paul has moved past this point of conflict in Acts 15 to such a point that he says, in my final months, perhaps, when I am facing death in prison, Mark is useful to me for service. And just as a further note, uh, there is a connection not only between Mark and Paul and Barnabas, but also between Mark and Peter. Peter describes Mark in 1 Peter 5 and verse 13. says, She who is in Babylon or Rome, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. And so he is described as a spiritually speaking son to Peter, the apostle, and as a fellow worker with Paul, and as someone that Paul views as useful in ministry. And so clearly... By the end of our acquaintance with John Mark in the New Testament, about which we don't have a lot more information than what I just laid out for you, we see that Mark has matured to the point of being able to be useful for service, to be described as a fellow worker, someone who's faithful despite conflict, someone who is willing to be used by God. Before we get into chapter 16, I think we have to ask ourselves this question. Who was right? Was Paul right? Was Barnabas right? 
And what was the role of God in all of this? Was Paul right? Paul was right, certainly, in what he said, that Mark had deserted them. Paul was also right in knowing that his own path lay through a lot of persecution. We see that throughout the rest of the book of Acts, imprisonment and beatings and all sorts of other things. And perhaps Paul recognized that Mark might not be ready for that sort of persecution. Was Barnabas right? Barnabas, I think, was right in giving Mark a second chance. How was God working in all of these things? Instead of there being two people going out on this missionary journey, now there's four. And instead of them going to one place, now they're going to different places. And so the churches are still being strengthened through the ministry of Silas and John Mark, and the churches are being strengthened, and new churches are being added through the ministry of Paul and Silas. So was God taken by surprise? No. Did God cause it to work out? Yes. Does that mean that it doesn't matter what our specific choices are? No. Does it mean that we should, in fact, consider whether we have either been wrong about someone or whether they have changed? I think that this passage, among the other ones that we looked at, certainly would encourage us to do that. Since Paul didn't take Mark, what happened next? Look at chapter 16. Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren. Paul is still looking for an opportunity to train someone, and even though he feels that John Mark is not the person that he should train, he takes the opportunity to minister now to a young man named Timothy. Verse 3, Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews, for they knew that his father was a Greek. This raises a whole lot of questions for us. What is the significance of the fact that it said that Timothy's father was a Greek? Why would Paul take this action, especially in light of what we've seen in Acts 15, about the requirement that the Gentiles didn't have to follow the Old Testament law? Doesn't it seem like Paul is waffling on what it is that he believed? Uh, turn over to the book of Galatians, if you would. And I think we'll see a little bit of the uh, conflict here that, that comes up in people's minds when we correlate what it says there in Acts with what Paul says in other places. Uh, turn to chapter 5, if you would, Galatians chapter 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free, therefore keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness." For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith is working through love. And so we look at a passage like this, and to understand it, we have to understand some of the history of the passage. God required of Abraham and his descendants 
that they would be marked off as belonging to him by this rite, this ritual of circumcision. We see this way back in the book of Genesis. This continues and was included in the law of Moses as a sign of something that marked off the men of Israel as being dedicated to God. And if they refused to have this done as infants, if their parents refused to do this for them, then that person was supposed to be excluded from the nation of Israel. Is this right or ritual required today? No. And Paul says, furthermore, that those who try to follow the requirements of the law of Moses and by them to be accepted before God, whether that be the Ten Commandments, no idols, no other gods, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, all these sorts of things. If we say that I'm going to follow the requirements of the law of Moses and God will accept me in His presence based on that fact, Paul says, you better make sure you keep it in every last point because that law will condemn you otherwise. And that's the case that we all find to be true, right? We say, I shouldn't lie, but we find that we lie. We say, I shouldn't steal, but we find that we steal to a greater or lesser degree. We, we, we say we shouldn't commit murder, and yet we hate other people. We say that we shouldn't commit adultery, and yet we respond to people around us potentially with lust. We say that we shouldn't covet, and yet we are dissatisfied and full of greed. And, and if our lives are judged on the basis of that law, it's a standard that we cannot meet. It says at the end of Matthew 5, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And Paul says to the Galatians, Gentiles, not Jews, he says, if you go back to this law that can only condemn you and show you how far you fall short of God's glory, that's not freedom, that's slavery. So don't listen to those who are trying to enslave you again. Why then would Paul do what he did with Timothy? His point was not to confuse the gospel message, which is that you cannot work your way to God, you cannot keep the law well enough, you cannot be a good enough person, you can't pray hard enough or give enough offerings to help people. You must trust only in Jesus and what He's done on your behalf. He's not trying to confuse that. He's writing to a group of Gentiles and saying, don't be enslaved to the law, it doesn't apply to you, and you can't keep it even if it did. That fits with what it says at the beginning of Acts 15 and in the middle part. But he says to Timothy in Acts 16, your mother's a Jew, and in the Jewish perspective, they're going to consider you a Jew, and they're going to consider you a Jew in bad standing, and that's going to limit the ministry that I want you to have to these Jewish people. Should it? No. But are you willing to make this sacrifice so that you can take the gospel to Jews? Because consider what Paul did in his ministry. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he always started as much as possible with the synagogue. And every place he went, he would start in the synagogue or in the gathering of those who are devout. He would preach the gospel to them. And then when invariably they rejected God, he would then turn to the Gentiles. And Paul is saying to Timothy, if you want to serve alongside me, if you want to have an effective ministry, your status is going to be an obstacle to you. And so Paul was not seeking to confuse the gospel, but rather to increase opportunities for the gospel. 
And we see that these are opened up for him because it says in chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, when they were passing through the cities, they delivered the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. And so Paul takes Timothy alongside him in ministry. Do we see Timothy as being someone who is closely connected to Paul? Paul writes him several letters. Paul sends him on a variety of tasks. Paul trusts him wholeheartedly. Paul encourages him as a son, uh, as a father would to his son, and basically mentors him and brings him up uh, to spiritual maturity, continuing the work that Timothy's mother and grandmother had already begun in teaching him things about God and how to follow God. Paul continued that work. And so Paul, in First and Second Timothy, particular Second Timothy, is able to say, I'm passing the torch to you, Timothy. So put this back into the context of this disagreement that takes place between Paul and Barnabas. Is it likely that if Paul had taken John Mark with Barnabas, that he would have had that ministry to Timothy? Probably not. We don't know for sure, but probably not. Is it likely that Barnabas, who was perhaps more patient than Paul and more willing to forgive than Paul and had a different style of ministry than Paul, would have helped mature John Mark in the way that he did if this disagreement had not taken place? Probably not. And so we see God's sovereignty working in what at first glance appears to be mere human selfishness, but in reality was people doing, uh, uh, seeking to be wise with the information that they had and the goals that God had laid out for them to accomplish the ministry God had set out for them, and God worked it out. We see this in verse 5 of chapter 16. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing a number daily. I didn't highlight this at the end of chapter 15, but the second phrase of verse 40 says, uh, Paul and Silas left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And so there's this sort of parallel commissioning, perhaps not as formal, perhaps not as extensive, and we don't see a mention of the Holy Spirit here, but I think we see the Spirit's hand in the sending out of Paul and Silas to do this work in the selection of Timothy, in the uh, work going forward. So when it comes to how this looks in churches today, clearly this passage is not a set of commands. It's not, do this this way. And yet I think it does teach us something about these sorts of situations. Is it possible for uh, two groups of people or two people to say this doesn't seem like it's working out the best. Yes. There are good churches in this area that we would have disagreements about on different points. Should our goal be to undermine those churches or oppose those churches or to say those churches are sinful or those sorts of things when the points of disagreement are matters that are not central to what it means to be a Christian. No, if those people are genuinely believing the gospel, that faith in Jesus and what he's done is the only way to God, and that's the message that they're preaching, and that's the message that they're living out, then we should be able to recognize 
that those ministries are accomplishing God's work at some level. That doesn't necessarily then follow that says, we're going to merge with one of those churches, we're going to try to start another church with one of those churches, because there may be differences of style, differences of approach that are incompatible, just like there was this sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Is it possible for God to accomplish his purpose through different churches working in different ways in a variety of places? Yes. So we can at the same time recognize God's sovereignty, recognize our own limitations, that sometimes we think someone should not be given a second chance, and yet given that second chance, they can serve God further, or we think that it should be done a particular way and someone else thinks it should be done a different way. That doesn't mean that it doesn't matter, but we do recognize that our judgment is limited, the knowledge that we have is not complete, and that God is the one who sees the big picture of what's taking place. So what does that practically look like? It practically looks like, instead of being uh, having a sense of overwhelming burden that we have to get every last thing right, and that if we, if we stray or fall off of sort of a tightrope, that uh, everything will be ruined from that point forward, we can be confident that God and His sovereignty can work both through our wise decisions and decisions that later on prove to say, I can learn from that. I can admit that my perspective, my attitude has changed. Paul says, I don't think Barnabas is use or Mark is useful. Later on he says, Mark is very useful. Please send him to minister alongside with me. We can recognize that we should still be diligent in doing ministry. Paul didn't say, forget John Mark, or I don't think John Mark is the right person. I'm just not going to minister to anybody. I'm not going to train anybody. I'm not going to take anybody with me. He said, I don't think that John Mark is the right person, so I'm going to pick Timothy. Again, we need to recognize that there are times when we should be like Barnabas and be more patient with people. We should recognize there are times that we should be like Paul and say, based on the past track record, I'm not sure this is the best choice. We should recognize that we have a responsibility to continue ministry regardless of the situation. And so when there are conflicts in ministry, it's not ultimately about the specific conflict. It's not ultimately about the specific people who are involved. The question is, is God's work going to move forward? According to verse 5 of chapter 16, are the churches going to be strengthened in the faith and increase in number daily? Because what happens oftentimes in ministry conflicts like this is that there are hurt feelings and church splits and anger and all those sorts of things, and the net result is not that the church is strengthened and people are added to the church, but that the church is weakened and people say, I want nothing to do with that church. And so we need to be careful that we guard our hearts against the sort of jealousy and bitterness that Hebrews warns us about that can lead this sort of a situation to disaster, but instead say, I will make a wise decision based on the information that I have, trusting that God is sovereign to work it out even when I have not chosen rightly or when I have chosen without knowing the entire picture that God does and recognize that my goal is to continue ministry 
I recognize that my goal is that God's work would be moved forward. Again, I'm not talking about any problems in our church. I'm just saying when conflicts arise, we have to say, what's most important here? Winning or God's work moving forward? And I think Paul and Barnabas recognized that even though there was a sharp disagreement and they said, we don't think that we can work together at this time, that God worked through it, that the churches were strengthened, that they responded properly, and that the, the ministry continued to go forward. And that's the important thing. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about always winning an argument. It's about does God's work continue to go forward. And that, I think, is, is one of the important lessons that we see from this passage. Let's pray before we go to the Lord's Supper. Lord, as we look at a passage like this, we see so many opportunities for there to be conflict. In this specific case, a disagreement about the best way to uh, approach a particular ministry task and who was best uh, qualified to participate in it. Lord, help us to be humble enough to recognize that our judgment may be flawed, to change that judgment at the appropriate time, to seek to continue ministry despite any potential disagreements that might arise, to see the goal is that your church is strengthened and that it is added to in numbers and in maturity. Lord, to see that the goal is that you would receive honor and praise, not that we, by selfishness or jealousy or inability to work out these sorts of conflicts, would undermine and give a bad testimony of your name to those who are watching what's going on. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from such conflicts, but we also pray that when such conflicts arise, as they do, living in an imperfect world and living as sinful people, that we would navigate them in a way that would bring honor to you, bring glory to you, and that would cause your church and your mission to go forth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.